I usually come up here and tell you how much I love you, but I'm not going to do... Well, I am going to do that. I, I do love you. I, I thank God for you, each and every one of you. But what I, what I really want to say is that God loves you. And, and some of you may need to hear that this week. Because sometimes, if we're real honest, sometimes it's kind of hard to believe, isn't it? That God loves us. I mean, he really, really loves you. And he's committed to you. That in Jesus, you are accepted. You are fully known by God and fully accepted and loved by God in Jesus. That's good news, isn't it, church? And here's the thing. It changes you. When you, when you really know that, I mean, we all, we all know it, right? I mean, you probably wouldn't be here if you didn't know that the Bible says God loves you. And, you know, we, we know it on an intellectual level that God loves us. But when we really accept that, I am really loved by God. And in Jesus, I am really accepted by Him. I stand before Him purified and holy and forgiven, completely 100% forgiven. When you really accept that, it changes, it changes everything. Because if you're the kind of person that lives your life wanting acceptance and never quite knowing if you have acceptance, wanting to be loved, never knowing if you're really loved or not, and saying, maybe if I'm good enough and maybe if I do this or do that, people will love me or God will love me. See, when you live your life that way, you're completely self-absorbed, aren't you? You're thinking about yourself. You're thinking about, I want to be loved, and I want to be taken. I want people to, to take notice of me, and I want God to take notice of me, and I want God to accept me, and maybe, maybe he will, and maybe he won't. And you live that life, and you're a slave to that. But in Jesus, we're set free from that. And when we really know and we really accept that we are loved and accepted by God in Jesus Christ, we're set free to, to stop thinking about ourselves all of the time and start thinking about God and start thinking about others. That's what our series this year is all about, is all about how we are responding to God's commitment. That this God of heaven was committed to mankind, to providing a way of salvation. That he so loved us that he gave his only begotten son. And that in response to God's commitment, we commit everything. We commit all to him, to his glory, to his cause, and to his people. That his steadfast love for us has caused us to be a people of steadfast love for him and for everyone we come into contact with. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Zechariah, but before we get there, let me just kind of explain to you the time period that Zechariah is prophesying in and what time he lived and, and worked and not to get too deep in the history. But if you're, if you're in our Sunday morning Bible classes, right now we're talking about Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther, and that time period is an interesting time in Israel's history. If you remember, it's, it's after, you know, Israel and Judah, they were two sister nations together and that they both fell away from God and didn't do what God told them to do and didn't live according to how God told them to live and they were punished by God and the, the northern kingdom was was taken over by Assyria and then later the southern kingdom was just 
totally decimated by Babylon. And many Jews were taken off into captivity and they were scattered all over the known world. And Jerusalem itself was in ruins, the walls and the temples and everything destroyed. Eventually, the Babylonian empire fell itself to the Medes and the Persians. And then the Persians allowed some of the Jews to go back to Israel, go back to Judah and to Jerusalem. And so there's just this little trickle of people that that are coming back from the exile and they're starting to rebuild and they're starting to wonder what now. Because if you remember, there were prophets before all of that happened and during the time that all of that happened, prophets like Jeremiah, who said that this exile is going to last for 70 years. And then there's going to come a time of refreshing and renewal that the best days for Jerusalem are yet ahead for them. And and there was going to come a king. And this king was going to bring in a time of prosperity and peace. And it was going to be wonderful and awesome and exciting. And that the exile was going to be over. And so as those 70 years began to get close to the end... They were wondering what you and I would wonder. They were wondering, you know, I think about when I send my kids to their room, not that the boys ever get sent to their room, you know, not that they ever get in trouble, but if they did, hypothetically, uh, get in trouble and, and they got grounded or sent to their room and, and you give them a, a time limit, right? You say, go to your room for 10 minutes or maybe go to your room for the rest of the day or whatever, you know, go, go to your room. And, and then when that time is, is nearing its end, what's the question? Can I come out now, right? Can, can I come out now? That's what everybody wonders when they're being punished for a certain amount of time. Is it over yet? Can I come out now? And that's what the kid wonders, right? The kid wonders, can I come out now? But as a parent, what's your question? Not just has the time expired, but have you learned your lesson? <laughs> have you learned your lesson? That's, that's the question. The question isn't just has the time expired, but did you... Did you learn why you got in trouble in the first place? Have you changed your behavior? Have you changed your attitude? Did you, do you realize why you got punished? And has there been a change? Are you ready to come out? Are you ready to accept the responsibility of the punishment being over? And that's the conversation that Zechariah has with the people because they're wondering Is it over yet? Do we still have to go on fasting and praying and mourning and and, and acting like we're in exile? Or is this this new, better time coming? So let's let's look at Zechariah chapter 7. Now, as we get into that, though, I, I want us to kind of keep in the back of our minds the relevance for us. Why, 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 why are we talking about Zechariah? Why are we talking about the Old Testament and some prophet and first half of the book are full of visions and, and dreams and all of these kind of things that are hard to understand? Why? What difference does that make for us? Because they were waiting for the day that we've received, right? They were waiting for the king that, that we have received. They were waiting for the kingdom that we have received as Jesus' followers. We're saying that this king and this kingdom that they were waiting for, this is ours. And if the question to them was, are you ready for that king? Are you ready for that kingdom? Then you and I better understand this story. If we're going to say, yes, we're ready for that king. Yes, we're ready for that kingdom. Yes, we want to be God's covenant people. We want to be grafted into this story. Then you better know what it is that God has always expected of his people. Why did he punish them? 
Why did he send them off into exile in the first place? What was it that he told his people when they were wondering, is it over yet? So in Zechariah chapter 7, the the people in Bethel sent men to ask of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, asking this, should should I weep and abstain fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? So for years and years and years and years, for decades, they had been remembering the, the destruction of the temple and fasting and praying and weeping, waiting for the exile to be over. And so the question is, do we, do we keep doing these ceremonies? Do we keep remembering in this way? Do we keep doing these, these fasts? And do we keep praying in this way? It says in verse 4, The word of the Lord of hosts came to me, to Zechariah, say, say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it, was it for me you fasted? Is, is that why you were doing that? Was that, was that for me? Was it because you loved me? Was it because you revered me? Was it because you were in awe of me? Is it because you understood why you got sent there in the first place? Was it because you were truly repentant? And when you eat and when you drink, do, do you not eat for yourselves? And drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets? So what I'm about to say to you is what the former prophets, the the prophets a long time, even from Zechariah's day, the prophets before the exile, the prophets before Assyria came in and Babylon came in, the prophets before the destruction, what is it that they told our forefathers? What were they told? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her in the south and the lowland were inhabited? Now listen, listen close. Verse 8, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, this is this is Zechariah, this is God's summary through Zechariah of what the prophets had told them even before their their exile. So in other words, here was the lesson you were supposed to learn, because because this is what God told our forefathers. Here's what the prophets said. You you remember what they said? And, and if you've read the prophets, then this sounds familiar to you as well. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments. Now, some translations may say like justice, and I'm certainly not a Hebrew scholar, and I guarantee I'll mispronounce these words, but that word there, judgments, is mishpat. Mishpat. And in that idea, when we think about justice and judgment, we usually think about punishing evildoers, right? Justice is punishment. It's, it's getting back at people. It's, you know, putting people in their place that do bad things. And there's some truth to that, even in this word mishpat. But more than anything, it's about fairness and equity. It's about when you notice someone is being oppressed, when you recognize that someone is suffering some sort of an injustice, you strive to make things right. You try to make sure that in Israel there is fairness and there is equity, that there is mishpat, that no one is taken advantage of, that no one is oppressed, that justice, real, true justice is served, that you don't have different weights for different people, that you don't treat the rich better than you treat the poor, that you don't treat people of one nationality or race better than you treat someone else, that you don't treat one class of person in a different way than you treat someone else. That is not mishpat. 
Mishpat treats people with fairness and equity, true judgment. And so Zechariah is saying to these that have come back and said, is, is my time out over yet? You know, can we, can we be done with the punishment? He, instead of answering, yes, it's over, or no, it's not over, he says, do, do you remember? Do, do you remember what the prophets told our forefathers? To, to make sure that judgment, true, real judgment, mishpat, is rendered? To render true judgments, to show kindness. Here's the word I really want to focus in on today. The Hebrew word there is chesed. You kind of have to clear your throat a little bit. Chesed. We'll just say chesed, though, okay? Can you all say that with me? Chesed? Chesed. Show chesed love. Kindness. The, when we're talking about God, that word is usually transla- translated as steadfast love. This kind of love that is kind, that does good for people, that holds on, that's committed, that that doesn't just do kind things when it's convenient or when it's good for me, but a love that does what's right and good and helpful and kind and generous, even when it's self-sacrificing, that that's the kind of God that our God is. Our God is a God of hesed love of steadfast love, who does what's right and good and helpful and generous and beneficial to others, even even when it hurts him. And he expects his people to be a people that not only render true judgments, that, that are concerned with fairness and equity and making sure that no one is taken advantage of and no one is oppressed and no one suffers injustice, but a people of hesed a people of steadfast love that rush in to help people that are in need, that do good to others even when it costs them, even when it's inconvenient to them. This is the type of behavior that was supposed to define Israel before the captivity and why it was that God sent his people into captivity. It was about the idolatry. Absolutely, they were worshiping other gods And the result of their idolatry was a failure to render true justice and a failure to show chesed, a failure to show and to be a people of steadfast love. So he says, you you remember what they said, to render true judgments and show kindness and mercy. The word there is raham. It, it, It has to do with the bowels. It has to do with this feeling in the pit of your stomach of pity. You know that feeling, don't you? Where you see somebody that's, that's hurting and you see somebody that's being taken advantage of and you've seen somebody that someone has done something evil to and you look at them and you, it hurts you in the pit of your stomach. But it doesn't just end there. It's mercy in that it acts upon that pity to alleviate the suffering and the hurt of others. He says, do, do you remember? This is, this is what our forefathers were told. This is the kind of people that they should be, a kind of people that render true justice and people that show kindness and show mercy to one another. And then he goes on to say, don't oppress. So here's the opposite of that, the very opposite of that. On the one hand, there's the, there's the positive, do these things. Not just have these feelings, but do these things. Make sure that justice is rendered, that no one suffers injustice, that no one is oppressed. 
Be people of hesed, people of steadfast love, people of mercy. And then on the other extreme, don't, don't oppress. And, and, and here's four types of people that God always called out and reminded his people to take care of and make sure that no one takes advantage of the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. He says, this, this isn't anything new. And you're coming to me asking, can we receive the kingdom now? Can we, can we have the king now? Can our exile be over now? And instead of a yes or no, it's are you, are you ready? Have you learned your lesson? Do you remember what the prophet said? Prophets like Isaiah, before the captivity, before the destruction, before the punishment, Isaiah said, wash yourselves. Wash yourselves, Israel. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil and learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. And listen to this. Plead the widow's cause. This is what the prophet said to our people. Micah, who prophesied during the same time period. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. He told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with your God. You know, isn't it interesting how religious people, we, our questions revolve around, do, how do I need to pray right now? I mean, what's, what's the right way to pray? And, you know, do I, I still need to be fasting on these special days? Or, you know, tell me the right ceremony. You know, I want to know all the right ceremonies. And, and God says, but you're missing the bigger point here. These are the kinds of people that you must be, a people of justice, who seek justice for the fatherless who plead the widow's cause, who correct oppression. These are the kinds of people that you need to be. And Isaiah and Micah and the other prophets kept telling them over and over and over and over again, stop doing evil and learn to do good. And listen to what Zechariah says in verse 11. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts, listen to this, they made their hearts diamond hard lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. Do, do you remember what Isaiah said, what God said to his people through Isaiah? It's vain that you worship me. I mean, you honor me with your lips. That's great. Keep doing that. But your heart is far from me. When, when my people turn a blind eye to oppression and injustice, when, when you're not looking out for the widow and the fatherless and the sojourner and the poor, then your heart is far from me. You're missing the whole point. And as I've read through the Bible, especially this year, it's really, really occurred to me that one of the things that God is most angered by 
is religious people who pray and sing and who are very concerned about the ceremonies while they are ignoring the people in need that are right in front of them. And you say, well, Wes, but this is Old Testament stuff. I mean, you know, let's, let's talk about the New Testament. Yeah, absolutely, let's talk about the New Testament. Do you remember how Jesus addressed this, this kind of hard-heartedness that led to the exile? And obviously, Zechariah is saying this to the people of his day because they still didn't get it. He's implying your forefathers, they, they heard all this same stuff, and they, they said, I'm not going to listen to you. And apparently the people of Zechariah's day didn't want to listen. And when Jesus showed up, there were people who didn't want to listen. Do you remember the story that he told about the rich man and Lazarus? I mean, that's a story we've taken it. We've made it all about the afterlife. You know, what? well, where do you go when you die? And, you know, what's it like in paradise? And what's it like in torment? That's, that's really not what the story is really about. It's a story about a rich man who, I mean, he had, he had all kinds of good stuff. I mean, nice clothes and food. I mean, he had everything he could possibly want. And there was a guy at his gate who was poor and had nothing. And it says, Jesus says that he, he wanted to eat the stuff that fell from the rich man's table. And they, they both die. And the rich man goes to torment in Hades. Why? What did, what did he do? Does it say? It absolutely says. There was a poor man at his gate and he had nothing to eat and yet the rich man didn't see him and didn't care for him and didn't feed him and didn't clothe him. Even though he could, he didn't. And now he's in torment. Lazarus has everything he needs and the rich man has nothing. And he begs. He says, please, just let me let me go back. and I, I just want to warn my brothers. And he's told, he's told this. He says, If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Hear Moses and the prophets about what? About the fact that there's an afterlife? That's what I used to read it as. I got to go back and warn my brothers that they better, you know, behave because, you know, there's something waiting for them if they don't. Well, what's the behave in the text? He wants to go back and warn his brothers, you better take care of the person at your gates. You, You better... Render true justice, and you better be people of Hesed love, and you better be people of mercy and grace because judgment's coming if you don't. And he's told if they didn't hear Moses and the prophets, who didn't say much about the afterlife, but they said a whole lot about justice and mercy and love and kindness and how you treat your fellow man. But it does. It's amazing to me, isn't it, how we can miss this, how I've missed this. And followers, people who've claimed to follow Jesus for hundreds of years have have missed it. And how we've fallen into the exact same trap that religious people always tend to fall into. And we say, well, yeah, but tell me how to pray. And tell me what to do in the ceremonies and how do I worship and all of those things. And we think that if we get our Sunday right, that's all we need to worry about. We've got to be careful, church. We've got to have our eyes wide open and say, who's the man at my gates that I'm ignoring? Where where am I ignoring oppression? And where am I ignoring injustice? And where am I letting those things go on because I've got everything I need? Are we paying attention? Because again, it's amazing to me that for the last 2,000 years, people that claim to follow Jesus have oppressed each other and enslaved each other and killed each other. 
You know, I think about, and you'll have to forgive me, but, but this person is on my mind here lately. I'm reading another one of his books, and probably my favorite person from American history is Frederick Douglass. You remember Frederick Douglass? He was an escaped slave, and then he became an outspoken proponent of abolition, and he, he experienced this, this hypocrisy of people who say, well, I follow Jesus, but yet they treat their fellow man like a beast. Here's something he wrote. He said, I love, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of the land. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds and the grossest of all libels. I'm filled with unutterable loathing when I contemplate the religious pomp and show together with the horrible inconsistencies which everywhere surround me. We have men-stealers for ministers, women whippers for missionaries, and cradle plunderers for church members. The man who wields the blood-clotted cowskin during the week fills the pulpit on Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly Jesus. God's people have fallen into this trap over and over and over again. Well, we think we've got our prayers right and our fasting right and our feasting right, and our religious ceremonies right, and those things matter. And they matter precisely because they change us or they're supposed to change us in the right direction. But if we're not changed into a people of steadfast love for our neighbor and our brother and even our enemy, then there's something horribly wrong. And so Zechariah answers their question, with, do you remember why we went to captivity in the first place? But then he goes on with a message of hope to say, listen, God was angry and he punished us and he scattered us all over, but he'll gather the remnant back home. And he's not done with Jerusalem or with his people. Life and peace will come out of Jerusalem and flow to the whole world And God will save Israel by restoring her to her role of blessing every every nation of the world. The Messiah will come. And, and, And Zechariah says so much about the Messiah that he will be both king and priest. He'll be a shepherd who is rejected by his people, sold for 30 pieces of silver. He says that he'll be humble and mounted on a donkey. The Messiah will be the perfect Israelite. He'll speak truth. He'll love peace. He will render mishpat. He'll render true justice. He will show hesed, steadfast love. And he will show raham, mercy. He'll pour out his spirit so that the remnant of Israel and all the nations can experience repentance and forgiveness. Look at Zechariah 12 and verse 10. It says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas of mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Does it remind you of what happened at Pentecost? 
And then we read in chapter 13 and verse 1, on that day there'll be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Somehow, through the rejection of the king, the king would reign and, and his spirit would be poured out on people and it would, it would change them. It would change them so that they repented of their wickedness and they turned to God and they became different, a different kind of people. And that's, that's what happened at Pentecost, isn't it? That's what happened in Jerusalem, that the Spirit of God went out and repentance happened and forgiveness happened and mercy happened and it changed them. And out of Jerusalem, they flowed to all the nations to change everybody and change everything through the good news of Jesus Christ because it changes people. It changes people. Has it changed you? If you, if you really believe this truth that God is a God of steadfast love, then this should be our prayer. May God's steadfast love flow through us to people like the widow, the fatherless, the immigrant, the poor, and the oppressed of every nation. As I said in first service, I'm not trying to be political. I'm trying to be Christian. This is what Christianity looks like. It looks like steadfast love because it's a response to God's steadfast love to us. So we must learn from Isaiah and we must learn from Micah and we must learn from Zechariah and we must learn from Jesus. We must learn from Moses and the prophets that God's people, if we've been changed by the spirit of God's steadfast love, then we must be a people of Hesed love of people that render mishpat, that look and have their eyes opened for people that aren't being treated fairly, for people that are being taken advantage of, for people that don't have the same breaks that we have, for people that don't have the same resources that we have, and we go out of our way to render justice, to plead their case, to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. This is what it looks like. Can you imagine? I, I think you can imagine because I think that we can see it here, can't we? I can see it in you. And I know that the, the more and more that the Lord works on us, the more and more it will be true. And, and can you imagine what Jesus, what the Spirit, what the Father will and is doing with us as people that have been changed by God's steadfast love and that we flow out from this place out into the world, and we love our neighbor as ourselves. We love our enemy. We pray for those who persecute us. And through that love that people can see in us, we draw them closer and closer to the God of steadfast love. And maybe you haven't experienced that yet. Maybe you haven't experienced that because of someone else failing to show you love. Or maybe you haven't experienced that because you haven't seen Jesus for who he is or responded to his invitation. We want to invite you to be changed and to experience his love and experience the love of these people that have been changed by God's love. And so if you haven't been baptized into Jesus or you just need the opportunity 
for us to show you that we love you and we care about you and we're in this together. We're not perfect. We're all trying to figure this out, aren't we? We're all trying to open our eyes a little bit wider and see how we can best be of service in our community to the people around us. And we're imperfect, but God works through imperfect people. He works through weak people. He works through people that are broken and have our own shortcomings, but he works through us to bring his love into the world. And if we can show you that love or make you part of this that's going on here, whatever we can do for you or with you, we want you as a part of our family. So after services, you can go pray with our shepherds or right now as we sing this song. Please, won't you come forward?